Hey, everybody. Do you struggle to find time and energy to consistently eat healthy? Well, you're not alone, and there is a solution. Introducing Factor, the all-in-one meal delivery service that preps, cooks, and delivers fresh, never-frozen, fully-prepared meals directly to your door weekly. With Factor, every meal is designed by dietitians and handcrafted by world-class chefs, keeping your taste buds happy and your waistline trim. What's more, the menu changes every week, so you never lose interest in eating healthy. I know that's always my problem with trying to eat healthy. Feels like there's only so many things you can eat, and you get sick and tired of eating the same thing over and over again. Well, that's not a problem with Factor. Right now, Factor is offering listeners of Open a Fucking Book $50 off your first two weeks. Just go to Factor75.com, pick your meals, and use the code PODCAST50 at checkout to claim this limited time offer. That's Factor75.com and code P-O-D-C-A-S-T-5-0. Hold on, just uh, Santa. What do you think about ho, the, ho, ho. the same thing you said last week? Okay, or two weeks ago. Uh, I'm ready for that. You'll be fine. We'll see how long I can last. Well, hopefully for as long as this takes, because once I start, we're not going to stop. <laughs> you can give me that look all you want. <laughs> I mean, well, you can continue without me, I suppose. I suppose. If that's what it takes. But, I mean, I just did take some medicine, so. I think you'll be all right. I took some Mucinex, so if I'm hacking and coughing shit up, I'm not going to be the greatest co-host. Just put your finger up and, and let me know that I need to stop, and I'll, I'll <laughs> that way I know to edit it out. It'll be fine. Okay. All right? Okay. Okay. All right. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. We are on episode two of Charles Dickens. Yep. So when we last left Charles, he had pretty much just completely fucked over Richard Bentley. Uh, kind of a common theme with old uh, Chuck. Old you think anybody Chuck. could ever call him Chuck? Maybe. I doubt it. I don't think he would have taken kindly to Chuck. I kind of like Chuck. It has a nice ring to it. It's like Chuck Palumbo. Do you think he ever went by Charles Palumbo? Pull that a little closer to you. You talk quietly. Sometimes. Everybody else says I'm loud. Well, a lot of times you are loud, but for some reason when you're out here, sometimes you're not so loud. But I don't know what to tell you. Tell me anything you want, just as closer to the microphone. <laughs> I'm as close as I can okay, get. Okay, don't put it in your mouth. <laughs> fuck up everything. All right, now going into 1840, Charles decided... Uh, maybe take a little easier than the years before. He was a busy man, as we had talked about before. Uh, but now he was famous, successful, and most of all, tired. So he made up his mind that there would be no monthly installment of a long novel and instead put his efforts into editing Master Humphrey's Clock. He would commission work from other writers and contribute short stories and some occasional essays himself. 
Chapman and Hall would pay him 50 pounds per issue plus half the profits, and copies would go to Germany and America. He was expecting about 5,000 pounds a year, which back then was good money, but didn't quite happen that way. The first publication in April sold around 70,000 copies, but the numbers fell exponentially after that. Thought maybe it was the hodgepodge of writers contributing to the magazine that was the problem, so he decided that he would have to be the sole contributor. The only problem could be is it's not everybody else. That do, everybody else is doing work, and it's not me, and people want to hear from me, so I'll do all the work, and then it'll be a success. Yeah, except it's... Well, so he expanded one slight story into a full-length serial, which meant improvising from week to week a novel that he hadn't even figured out the plot to. So instead of a leisurely year of editing and small writing and no hard deadlines for himself, now he had to edit, come up with ideas for his own story every week, stick to an even more strict deadline than what he had before. He wrote to a friend, quote, Day and night, the alarm is in my ears, warning me that I must not run down. I am more bound down by this Humphrey than I ever been yet. Nickleby was nothing to it, nor Pickwick, nor Oliver. It demands my constant attention and obliges me to exert all the self-denial I possess. <laughs> this new strain affected his health. The doctor told him to change his diet. To get more exercise. And this is where a lot of his uh, walking comes in. Because he was a walking man. He loved to walk. Fucking walking all over the place. The, his boots were made for walking. Sure. Now, even with work mounting, he still couldn't help himself from finding more things to do. So in London, he gave his time to good works, helping the unfortunate and encouraging poor aspi aspiring writers. He also traveled, made friends, traveled with friends, took his family on small vacations, went to see his parents. Oh, and by May, Catherine was pregnant again. So he had time for a lot of things, I guess. He had time to get it on. You know? Now, everything he was doing could be seen a distraction from the story he was to all intents and purposes, writing on the fly week by week. Oddly enough, the old curiosity shop became the second highest seller of all his books behind Pickwick at that time, which was another improvised story. Now, this was an odd story about a girl named Nell who tries and fails to escape from her fate with a supposed protector, her grandfather, addicted to gambling, and a grotesquely wicked pursuer, the dwarf Quilp both putting her at risk and driving her towards her death. Nell is sweet and good and innocent, which endeared her to her male readers. At age 13, Nell has to watch over her grandfather, who has been corrupted by his fascination with money. Who does that remind us of? A corruption being with the fascination with money. Oh, Trump? No, wait, No, what? his father. Oh, I was like, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> Corrupted with his fascination with money. His daddy. His father. Uh, there's a bit more to the story than just Nell, but she was the one that drew people in. And her death is what makes the book famous. So it's kind of like the first YA novel? <sighs> no, I don't think there's any vampires in it. 
that's not indicative of a YA novel. Forrester was the one that suggested that he kill her off, and he decided to approach it slowly, drawing the tension and anxiety over the course of several weeks. So you know this girl's going to die, and you keep waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it, and he just takes longer getting there, takes longer getting there, drawing it out. More like the first anime. <laughs> For any of you watch Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, a five, uh, what's supposed to be a five-minute fight takes like seven episodes, and it's annoying as shit. But you still, you still watch. I don't. I do. I know. Now, he received letters begging him to save her. Apparently, it is said that men were seen sobbing uncontrollably when they read that she died. But maybe no one suffered the loss of Nell as much as Charles himself. Writing to Forrester, quote, You can't imagine how exhausted I am today with yesterday's labors. All night I have been pursued by the child, and this morning I am unrefreshed and miserable. I don't know what to do with myself. I think the close of the story will be great. Then, a few days later, he said, quote, The difficulty has been tremendous, and the anguish unspeakable. And to his illustrator, he wrote, quote, I am breaking my heart over the story. I cannot bear to finish it. He genuinely suffered over the slow murdering of Nell. But from the letter he wrote to Forster, would tell that he had put himself in this depression and painful mood on purpose. Quote, I shan't recover it for a long time. Nobody will miss her like I shall. It is such a very painful thing to me that I really cannot express my sorrow. I have refused several invitations for this week and next, determining to go nowhere till I had done. I am afraid of disturbing the state I have been trying to get into and having to fetch it all back again. He doesn't actually describe the death in the story, but at the end, there is an illustration of her being lifted up to the heavens by four angels, their eyes shut and a slight smile on her face and uh it's all i'm really going to say about this piece except for the fact that this story might have the best character name ever dick swiveller (laughs) (laughs) dick swiveller uh forrester told him that the shop your old curiosity shop was his literary masterpiece and that later numbers sold 100000 a week. Charles knew he would need to keep the magazine going for another year at least, and finally, Barnaby Rudge would begin to appear on February 13th, 1840 run, 40 run, 41, and run until December. It was the least popular of his books then and still is today. Nobody really knows about Barnaby Rudge. It's not a... It's not a classic and it wasn't really seen as a great book then either no uh it's a historical novel and this was not yet his thing Uh, it's mostly about the simple-minded hero named barnaby with his pet raven wandering innocently through the time of the gordon riots of this uh, 1780s it got poor reviews many authors get poor reviews it happens yeah uh, Charles needed to do something. He owed Chapman and Hall money, and his family was still growing because he wouldn't stop getting on top of his wife. Procreating. 
Uh, Walter was born February 8th, 1841, the day after Charles's 29th birthday. Uh, plus, Charles had expensive habits and tastes, just like his father and his grandfather. Speaking of whom, John was back to fucking things up and behaving outrageously, forging Charles's signature on bills, which would sometimes show up at the Chapman and Hall offices. Finally, he had had enough, and Charles put a notice in the London newspaper disclaiming responsibility for promissory notes and saying he would not discharge any debts but his own and his wife's. He also offered his father a pension and to pay for Augustus's schooling if he would just leave the fucking country. John refused. I will give you free money and pay for my brother's education if you just fucking go away. No. Yep. I'm okay. I'm good signing your name to checks. I'm going to do what I want. Fuck you. Now, Charles' health was less than great through a large portion of that year. He had been suffering from bilious attacks lasting for several days and severe indigestion. Uh, happens to the best of us. I've got to take an Omeprazole every day now. Otherwise, I get, you know, the heartburn. <laughs> He's old. Yeah. He was also worried about his future and feared burning himself out and making himself too cheap. So, in late August, he persuaded Foster, a Forster, to help him convince Chapman and Hall to pay him to do nothing for a year. And then he would start to write a long novel in November of 1842. He would be paid for each monthly installment, get three-quarter of the profits, and retain half the copyright. And Master Humphrey's clock would be closed down when Barnaby came to an end. They agreed. Damn, I'm going to get paid to do nothing? Yeah. So, what does he do with all this newfound freedom from work? Travel. He persuaded Catherine to go with him to America. Without the children. But with Catherine's maid, Anne. So, like, six months without the kids. I, I couldn't do that. Yeah, I know you couldn't. Now, while the planning and details of the trip were being ironed out, Charles got so sick that surgery had to be done. He was suffering from an anal fistule. Now, an anal fistule, for those of you who don't know, is a small tunnel that develops between the end of the bowel and the skin near the anus. They're usually the result of an infection near the anus, causing a collection of pus in the nearby tissue. When the pus drains away it can leave a small channel behind. So, you have a, 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 a tunnel from your side of your, the inside of your ass cheek to your bowels. Could probably do some cool magic tricks with it, I would think. So he's kind of got like a second asshole. Something like that, yeah. Uh, the operation was carried out at home and because of the times without anesthesia. And on October 8th, it was a success. So, just a little trivia for you, if anybody asks you uh, if Charles uh, Dickens ever had any surgeries, you can be, actually, he did. Let me tell you about anal fistules. <laughs> now, the next day, he was feeling better and ready to get on to planning the trip. When out of the blue, Catherine's brother, George, died. 
for no real apparent reason that they could tell, just like uh, her sister Mary, she all of a sudden just up and died. This upset Charles greatly. Not that he was all that close to George, but because George would be buried next to Mary, where he himself was planning to go after he died. And he was depressed at the thought, and he told Forrester that his love for Mary was never diminishing. He felt like losing her for a second time. Dude. And that's not, I told you earlier that there's a part in here that's going to really make you hate him. That's not it. Just Get like, over just like, the chick. You know, I don't. He. I don't know. He seems like he's one of those people that wants the things that he can't have, but then when he gets them, doesn't know if he wants them anymore. I think he, it feels like he's that type of person. He's now on douche. <laughs> on December fifteenth, both the old Curiosity Shop and Barnaby Rudge were published in book form, each in one volume. But now let's get to the American trip. Now, he knew he would be great greeted well, his writing sold well over here, and he was hoping to get enough material to write another book. He also intended to raise the question of international copyright and the pirating of his books, which deprived him of the income on which he as a writer depended. But his biggest reason for taking the trip was to see what he hoped was a better society free of monarchy, aristocracy, and worn-out conventions. And I'm sure then maybe it was not anymore. I doubt it was very much back then. Mm. Uh, they were all against the whole monarchy thing back then. The aristocracy, maybe not so much. Uh, the Americans saw him as the English writer on, his, on their side, who believed in liberty, democracy, and who showed in his books that he cared about ordinary people and thought the poor more worthy of attention than the rich. Quote, His mind is American, his soul is Republican, his heart is Democratic. Now, they would land in Boston, then to New York, Washington, Baltimore, as far west as St. Louis, through Ohio, across Lake Erie to Buffalo, Niagara Falls, Canada, before returning to New York for the return voyage home in June, more than two thousand miles you have to go around england quite a bit to hit two thousand miles it's not a very big place yeah but i mean just half our country <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> not, not even, even half, half. <laughs> the mississippi river isn't even halfway through you got to go like on the other side of fucking kansas before you're technically like closer to halfway well yeah well i was gonna say not even half because they didn't even get the yeah they didn't half. go to this yeah the furthest south that he goes i mean is like richmond virginia as far as on the East Coast and then over to St. Louis, so that whole area. So he doesn't really even cross the Mason-Dixon line all that all that far. So, yeah, he's got a, a, a ways to go. Yeah, he yeah. got like a quarter of the U.S. Yeah. And ignorant to the American climate and being very impatient, he decided to book their crossing over the Atlantic in midwinter. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Midwest and the Northeast... Not the best places to be in the middle of the winter. No. No. And the Atlantic Sea, not the most kind in the middle of winter either. No. Yeah. So right off the bat, Charles is pissy because the staterooms in the Britannia, the boat that they were taking, uh, were too small to admit their trunks. They had bunk beds. And when the door was open, you couldn't turn around. 
And when it's shut, you, quote, can't put on a clean shirt or take off a dirty one. Catherine tried and succeeded at having a more cheerful view, which we will get to a little bit later. Now, the Atlantic crossing turned out to be one of the worst the ship's officers had ever known. The sea was rough and the waves were high. And instead of two weeks, it took 18 days. The couple were both ill for most of the first week. The smokestack had to be lashed with chains to stop it from being blown over and set fire to the decks. All of the lifeboats were smashed by bad weather. Catherine developed a toothache and a swollen face. They found themselves flung from their seats and rolling out of rooms as the ship bucked and plunged. And when they approached Halifax and Nova Scotia, they ran aground and had to wait for the rising tide to release them from the rocks. Not the best trip. Yeah, I would not say so. That would not be fun at all. But But it would be an experience. Uh, yeah, that's experience, but you gotta think with all that shit happening in the middle of the Atlantic, it's gonna be fucking scary as shit. Yeah, but, I mean, it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, it will be a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing for him to come to America, and you'll, but that's not the reason why. Now, when they finally got to Boston, Charles fell in love with the city almost immediately. It was snowy and cold, but clean with handsome buildings, no beggars, and the city was run on admirable principles. State-funded welfare, the men that guided and befriended him were Harvard graduates. He spoke at a dinner, answered questions from his readers, and didn't see his remarks ignored until he brought up the question of international copyright. Uh, It kind of reminds me of, like, late 90s, early 2000s. Like, if you were to meet a rock star, like, back then... And you'd be like, oh, yeah, you'd listen to every single thing they say until they start telling you about how horrible Napster is. And you might kind of, I don't know, black them out a little bit because everybody was using Napster because yeah. nobody wanted to actually buy their music. LimeWire. So, so it's like, oh, God, I love you guys so much. You're so fucking awesome. Yeah, well, if you could stop using Napster, hmm, what? No, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, now he spent. A day touring factories and was impressed by the well-educated girl mill workers, writing to Forrester, quote, I have a book already. Uh, He also visited the Asylum for the Blind, the House of Industry for the Indignant, School for Neglected Boys, the Reformatory for Juvenile Offenders, and the House of Corrections for the State, and found them all models of their kind. And Boston took to him as much as he did to it. Constant requests for autographs, invitations to every part of the country, deputations, cheering crowds, ladies trying to snip off parts of his fur coat or asking for locks of his hair, shaking hands with hundreds of people, painters wanted to paint him, sculptors wanted to sculpt him. Charles took on a secretary, George Putnam, to help him deal with the situation. He was competent enough to be kept for the rest of the trip. But even though Boston became a little hard to handle by the time they had left on the 5th of February, he loved the city and its people. And then they went to Hartford. Charles was again greeted warmly until he brought up the case for international copyright, where he was again ignored. The local press put out a comment that he should just be happy with his popularity and grateful that people wanted to read his stories and he should quit fussing over pirated copies. And much of the American press followed suit. We got this guy coming over. He's great. Everybody loves his stuff. But he keeps fucking complaining about stupid shit like... Us pirating is is material. I mean, 
motherfucker wants to get paid. I, and I'd a, be pissed too. America's a big market. Even back then, it was a big market, and he was losing out on all that money. Because as we found out in the Bram Stoker series, American copyright was a fickle bitch. And people could pretty much do whatever the fuck they wanted with your material, and there wasn't a whole lot you could do about it. No, not really. Yeah. And well, that's like 100% of his income coming in is from his writing. It, it does affect you quite a bit. Now, Catherine continued to deal with the tooth problems and the swollen face, but bared it best she could and came off friendly and straightforward. But still, the two became tired of the life of celebrity in America, hours of shaking hands and meeting with people. So then it was to New York and their Boz Ball, where 3,000 people would be there to meet the couple. They went to the Park Theater Ballroom on the 14th of February, which was decorated with medallions showing characters from his novels. Charles appeared on the arm of the general in uniform, and Catherine after him on the arm of the mayor, while the band played See the Conquering Hero Comes, and they were cheered as they lapped the room twice. Food consisted of 50,000 oysters. Ugh. I love oysters. I know you do. 10,000 sandwiches, 40 hams, listen, 50 jellied turkeys. Ew. I don't even know what the fuck that is. What is a jellied turkey? I'm not sure. I deliberately didn't look it up because I don't really want to know. I mean, I'm not. I don't think it's like in a in a jelly. That that's what it feels like. It feels like the turkey was cooked and then like cooked down into like a jelly. People Ew. used to do weird shit. Yeah, maybe uh, that is. 12 floating swans, 350 quarts of jelly and blanc mange, which is just English panna cotta, which sounds delicious, and 300 quarts of ice cream. And I imagine a partridge in a pear tree, too. Now, this is a Christmas episode. Now, on the 18th, there was the New York Dickens Diner, where Washington Irving spoke his praise, and Charles announced that he wouldn't accept any more invitations to public dinners or receptions and would travel travel privately from now on. This is just too much. I just can't handle all the accolades. Cheer for me, cheer for me. <sighs> Poor Dickens. Yeah. He also brought up international copyright, which was, again, with the exception of the New York Tribune, Washington Irving, and a few other writers, mostly ignored. Before leaving New York, he visited their asylums, prisons, police stations, and rough districts. And where he had admired the institutions in Boston and New York, he found them to be ill-managed, dismal, and intolerable. So, still New York. <laughs> Pretty much. New York is intolerable. <laughs> <laughs> most of the country is. Most of the world is intolerable. I wouldn't mind leaving at some point. Now, both he and Catherine got horrible sore throats and had to postpone their trip to Philadelphia, where he was to meet Edgar Allan Poe. <gasps> yeah, uh, by the by the end of it, I don't have it in here, but by the end of it, Poe's not a huge fan. He loves Dickens' writings, but he's not a huge fan of Dickens as a person because of some of the shit that's going to happen later on. Well, I can imagine. Yeah. Now, through this whole trip, the main takeaway, at least for me, isn't how the press treated Charles questioning the international copyright or having to deal with his celebrity in America, but how Catherine had been through the entirety of it. She was uncomplaining, 
cheerful, charming, a good companion to her husband, his ally among strangers, and the fact that she wasn't pregnant for once meant that she could enjoy herself. Uh, She would dance. She would drink. She would eat. She would have conversations. Uh, she would just genuinely try to have a good time. Even, no girl. Even when Charles was being kind of a curmudgeon, she was there, the one with the smile on her face, trying to uh, lift his spirits so he could enjoy himself. And she deserved it. She did. Uh, the trip changed their relationship for the better. F- for now. I'm cold. Will you go grab my hoodie off the bed? Now, they went to Washington, and they met with the new president, Jonathan Tyler, who wasn't elected but given the presidency under duress from many in Congress and cabinet after President Harrison died. Uh, they, At the time, they didn't know what to do as far as a, vice, a president dying and then the vice president taking over. Uh, so they just figured that he'd be in charge for a little bit while they held a new election, and he through a big fit. So he's like, no, I'm I'm the president now. And they were calling him the fake president. They had a bunch of different names for him, uh, but nobody wanted him to be president. Yeah. Yeah. And Charles remembered that Tyler had nothing of interest to say or ask. And when an invitation to dinner at the White House arrived a few days later, Charles declined, saying they would be leaving before that. Uh, he was even less impressed with the Senate and the House. Quote, We are now in the regions of slavery, spittoons, and senators. All three are evils in all countries. <laughs> He's not wrong. Now, going into the um, slave-owning states upset him for, his, for its blatant inhumanity so much that he turned back after a short stay in Richmond, Virginia. He wrote to Forrester, quote, I don't like the country. I would not live here on any consideration. It goes against the grain with me. It would with you. I think it impossible, utterly impossible, for an Englishman to live here and be happy. Yeah, it it should have been. Should have been impossible for a lot of people, but different times, I guess. People turn the blind eye to things because status quo uh, still happening. But Now, they traveled along the Pennsylvania Canal through the Allegheny Mountains, stopped off in Pittsburgh, and he had much to say about the, quote, follies, vices, and grievous disappointments of America. Then they spent five days in Cincinnati, which he actually liked very much, saying it was the prettiest place in America after Boston. Oh, how things have changed. Yeah, Boston's not pretty. Uh, it is during the fall, I guess. The fall? The fall. Autumn. You park your car the Harvard Yard. <laughs> that was horrible, but yes. Well, it's turned into, it, it's, it's an, you know, a lot of these cities turned into industrial cities when the Industrial Revolution hit, and yes. they never went back to the, you know, beauty that they had before. You could say that about almost any metropolitan area. Beautiful back then. It's not as beautiful anymore because we've raped the land of all of our resources. Yeah. It's either farmland or city. Yeah. Even farms are gorgeous. If, if, you know, you can find one that's kind of on a, like a road, like, like driving through Kansas. Kansas is beautiful and it's nothing but farms, but it's, it's, 
you know, got some hills and you just got to find the beauty in it. But when you, for me, you drive to a city, all you see is smoke coming out of stacks and buildings everywhere. To me, that's not beautiful. Now, even though he showed up during a temperance festival, which he disapproved of, and he went to a party thrown by a judge where he met, quote, at least 150 first rate bores separately and singly. I really think my face has acquired a fixed expression of sadness from the constant and unmitigated boring I endure. Such a dick. <laughs> so apparently you love Cincinnati, but I, I guess it was boring. Uh, they traveled to St. Louis and on the, quote, beastliest river in the world, Mississippi, uh, they rode in a private carriage on a corduroy road made of logs that made them fall to the floor in a heap and then thrown into the air with every bump. So I just see them. <laughs> <laughs> I, bit, I When I was listening to this on my drive home, I just burst out laughing listening to them uh, describe in great detail how they would fall to the floor, hit a bump, hit the ceiling with their heads, come back down, crashing to the floor. And they all, by the time the trip was done and they got out of the carriage, they were all banged up and bruised. Their hats were like crushed and shoveled. Yeah. They, pretty funny. Uh, just to see, think of him kind of shaken like that. Brought a smile on my face. <sighs> they uh, slept in a bug infested log house. He called the country people in Ohio, quote, Invariably morose, sullen, clownish, and repulsive, destitute of humor, vivacity, or capacity of enjoyment. And I have not heard a hearty laugh these six weeks except for my own. Uh, So what he doesn't quite understand is life in America in the 1840s in the Midwest was kind of shit. It was cold. People didn't have much. So they didn't have a whole lot to laugh about. It's still cold. We still don't have much, and we still don't have a whole lot to laugh about. I mean, it's. I think it's a little better now than it was in the 1840s. But people, I mean, it was like you measured how bad a winter was back then by how many of your children died. It, it wasn't a great time for Middle America as far as you know, lifestyle went. I don't think he understood that because he comes from very posh London. Now, he was moved by the plight of the natives, known to him as the Wyandotte Indians, the last tribe of Ohio. He thought them a, quote, fine people, but degraded and broken down. Because we degraded and broke them down pretty badly. Yeah. Uh, They took a boat over Lake Erie to Buffalo, then to Niagara Falls, which he loved, and off to Canada. They went to Toronto, which he hated. Probably because of some fucking degens from up, up country. I hate degens from hate. Up, up Then, country. Then to Montreal and Quebec. Quebec. Fuck he, Quebec. The fishing in Quebec. Uh, they joined in theatricals with the local British regimental officers and their wives, stage managing and acting. Then back to New York to set off from America on June 7th. Took 22 days on the George Washington to get back to England. Probably fight. I would imagine they're fighting against the current. It's probably why it took a little bit longer. Uh, when they finally got to their home on the 30th of June, they returned to their children and 15-year-old Georgina Hogorth, Catherine's youngest sister. Her education was now over, and she would live with the Dickinsons and help care for the children in exchange for sharing in the life of the household. Dickinsons. The Dickinsons. 
Dickens. 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 I'm leaving all of this in. So you Dickens. Know. The Dickensons. Dickens. Dickens. His name is Dickens, so the plural can't be Dickens. Dickens. The Dickenses. Dickens. In July, Charles published a circular address to British authors and journalists about the copyright situations, stating his resolution to enter into no further negotiations of any kind with American publishers as long as there was no international copyright agreement and to forgo, forego any profits, a decision he stuck to for 10 years. Now, during the next couple months, Charles would compile, read through, and edit his letters from America to write a new book. And on October 19th, American Notes for General Circulation was published. Reviews were mixed in England, but sold fairly well. He made about a thousand pounds, but in America, it sold even better. 50,000 copies were sold in the first two days in New York, and 3,000 in a half hour in Philly. It again was meant with mixed reviews because it wasn't very kind to us. And you see, oh, Americans see something with American on it, they're going to buy it and be like, oh, this is about us. And then they read it and they're like, motherfucker. I do not like your fake Southern accent. Okay. I'm fine with that. You don't have to like it. I don't like the Southern accent at all. I know. Uh, by the end of the year, he was again working in fiction and starting a new serial novel, Martin Chuzzlewit. You ever heard of Martin Chuzzlewit? Sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, he used this as another outlet to hammer home his dislikes of America and how he was treated while he was there. Corruption, violence, slavery, spitting, boastfulness, self-righteousness, obsession with money, greed, graceless eating, hypocrisy about equality, and the crude lionizing of visitors. This was the book that would end his friendship with Washington Irving. Uh, he was hoping and expecting for Chuzzlewit to run for a year and a half and have the same appeal as Pickwick, Oliver, Nickleby, and the Curiosity Shop. But when it also appeared in December of 1843, it was clear that the public wasn't keen on it. The old Curiosity Shop had 100,000 sales each month. Chuzzlewit was getting about 20,000. Uh, the country was in a recession, so most didn't have the extra money to spend on a monthly magazine. And the last two books, Barnaby Rudge and American Notes, didn't help out his reputation. Sales were so bad that the publishers lowered his payments from 200 pounds to 150 pounds. Charles understood, but he was hurt. You know, hurt so much that he was going to start looking for a new publisher. Ooh. Yeah. And while all this was happening, John Dickens was applying to his son's friends and even his publishers for money borrowing sums he could not possibly repay, which forced Charles to pay for him. And it pissed him off and shamed him that his name was being misused. The fact that he never knew what new parental demand on his income would turn up, Charles refused to speak to John directly, especially after John left the house that Charles had paid for and moved back to London. Remember the first episode? I know it's been a little bit since we talked about it. First episode, he bought his parents and Augustus a uh, house outside of London for them to live in, well, John said, fuck that, and moved back to London. Oh, and uh, Catherine's pregnant again. <laughs> Get used to that. Because it's going to be a lot. 
He's in love with another woman, but has no problem getting his wife pregnant. Well, the other woman he's in love with is is dead. Yeah, I know, but he's still in love with her. Well. <clears throat> Maybe that's why they do it so much. He pictures. Maybe. Now, also back in October, Charles started kicking around the idea of a short book to be sold at Christmas. By the 24th of October, he had John Leach, an artist introduced to him by Crookshank, working on illustrations. And on November 10th, he was discussing the cover and advertising with Forster. He told a Boston friend that he had composed it in his head, weeping and laughing and weeping again as he walked about the, quote, black streets of London, 15 and 20 miles, many a night when all sober folks had gone to bed. Oddly enough, and this is true, I wrote this part of the script while probably the best iteration, or maybe the second best after the Muppets version uh, of the story, was on television. Scrooged. Remember when we were watching Scrooge the other day? I was literally writing this down as we were watching Bill Murray uh, try to not get killed by Bobcat Goldthwait. Now, A Christmas Carol was his response to the condition of the working class in London. Charles was enraged at the horror of indifference of the rich to the fate of the poor, who had almost no access to education or health care, saw their young children set to work for ruthless factory owners, and could consider themselves lucky if they were only half-starved. Now, Charles asked Chapman and Hall to publish this little book on commission, and he insisted on fine colored binding and end papers and gold lettering on the front and spine, and that it should cost only five shillings. It's like, I want you to do all this shit and then sell it for as little as possible. It's not how it works. Yeah. It was published on December 19th, sold 6,000 copies in the few days before Christmas. It went on selling into the spring of 1844 with seven editions by May. He used his memory of men running to work to get to a job where they made the same amount of money to do the job they've been doing for 20 years, as uh, um, Bob Cratchit had been doing, uh, trying to raise a family on poverty rages. He used his sister Fanny's crippled four-year-old son as the inspiration for, any guess? Uh, 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 I forgot his name. Tiny Tim. Yeah, Tiny Tim. Tiny I was Tim. Say Tom Thumb. But oh, that's a different story. <laughs> I know. Not by Dickens. No. Uh, he also uses experience in visiting the ragged schools with his friend Mrs. Couts, one of the wit- richest women in London at the time. And she, uh, different from other rich people in London at this time and now, actually used her wealth to help the less fortunate. Now, these schools were set up in the poorest parts of London by volunteer teachers prepared to teach any who came, the homeless and starving, disabled, even students that miss class occasionally because of prison. (laughs) Yeah. And his reading of the Children's Employment Commission that showed children under seven were put to work unprotected by any legal constraints, sometimes for up to 10 to 12 hours a day, inspiring the scene where the spirit of Christmas present shows Scrooge two stunted and wolfish children, calling them ignorance and want. Now, when Scrooge asks, quote, have they no refuge, no resource? The spirit throws Scrooge's words from earlier in the book back into his face. Quote, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Hmm. Yeah. 
with its mix of horror, despair, hope, warmth, humor, and a message that even the worst of sinners can repent and become a good man, it lodges itself into the hearts of the readers, and it still sits there today. And it's honestly the only reason we're doing this series during Christmas. Because otherwise, why would you? Hmm. Now, Charles was sure that the sales of the book would make enough money to pay off a significant amount of his debt and leave him with some in hand. But almost all of the profits were absorbed in the expense of binding, special paper, colored plates, and advertising. By the end of 1844, he had only made 726 pounds on the book. Worse still, he had to take legal action against a pirated version of his story sold for two pence on the day the second edition came out. He won the case, but the publishing pirates declared bankruptcy, and Charles had to pay 700 pounds in costs and law charges. So in reality, he only made 26 pounds on probably his most famous book ever. That is so depressing. (laughs) It is. Well, what's the pro when you when you read about like some of his kids, he had a couple kids die in poverty. He's probably the greatest novelist of all time, and you got children dying of poverty. That's sad. That is very, very On January 15th, 1844, a third son, Francis, was born. Catherine recovered quickly from the labor, and Charles wrote to his friend T.J. Thompson, quote, Kate is all right again, and so they tell me is the baby, but I declined on principle to look at the latter object. He wasn't big on sons. He wanted daughters. He wasn't big on boys. Why? He, I don't, he... He got along better with women, with girls. He he, uh, kind of connected with them better. He didn't know how to handle boys, and uh, he's uh, he's a real hard disciplinarian to his kids, especially the boys growing up. Everything has to be clean. Everything has to be perfect. Uh, he's kind of a general at home when it comes to the kids, especially the boys, and it leads to a lot of resentment between him and his sons, not his daughters so much. Daddy's girls, I guess. Mm. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Ladies, you know that man in your life with the big, beautiful beard? Or the one trying to grow a beard, even if it's just a little stubble? Well, what you might not know is that the skin underneath all that face fur can get dried out and super itchy, causing scratching that leads to flaking, and if there's anything worse than head dandruff, the beard dandruff. That's why we've teamed up with TheBeardStruggle.com. They know what goes into having a big, glorious beard, hence the name. And they've created some of the best products in the market to help the man in your life tame those majestic chin locks and soothe the skin underneath. Be it the day and night oils, which keep the beard soft and the skin moisturized, and they smell great, by the way, or the beard straightener that calms those extra curly face hairs and makes that beard look fuller and healthier. Kevin uses these products and his beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better than 
I, I really enjoy playing with this right now. Beardstruggle.com uses 100% all natural ingredients. They never test on animals and have a 90 day money back guarantee. All you have to do is go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on the link in the show notes. And don't forget to use our exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, for 15% off at checkout. That's A U D I O 15 for 15% off your entire order. Go now. Now, whether it was to get away from all the babies, nursemaids, and his wife, he took to traveling and speaking around England. He addressed the Mechanics Institute in Liverpool and the Polytechnic in Birmingham. Now, if you don't like him as a person, if you didn't like him as a person before, this will probably make it worse. This was the part I told you that you're going to be really pissed off about. While in Liverpool, he saw his sister Fanny, revisited the Britannia, and... Then at an evening speech before an audience of 1,300, he fell in love with Christiana Weller, a 19-year-old concert pianist who performed at the reception. He invited himself to lunch with the surprised Weller family the next day and joked that she shared a name with Sam Weller from Mr. Pickwick. He wrote a little limerick, and this is the part that's going to piss you off. Quote, I love her dear name which has won me some fame, but great heaven, how I'd gladly change it. And for all of you who did catch on to that, that's pretty much him saying, uh, I want to marry this girl while his wife is at home with their children. Their four children. I punch him in the dick. <laughs> I told you you wouldn't be happy about it. Now, the next morning Bitch. he was on the trip... <laughs> The next, the next morning, he was on the train to Birmingham. Uh, the tal- town hall crammed to the roof for his speech. That night, he wrote to Thompson to boast about the speech and to gush about Christiana. Quote, Good God, what a madman I should seem. If the incredible feeling I have conceived for that girl could be made plain to anyone. Uh, he spoke so well of Christiana that Thompson himself fell in love with her and proceeded to woo her. Charles encouraged it, living vicariously through his friend, until a year later when she became Mrs. Thompson and he turned against her and the whole Weller family. Uh, he's fucked up in the head. I'm not going to disagree with you. That's... I, uh, <laughs> I d- Puts a completely different light on one of everybody's favorite novelists doesn't it yeah that he was kind of a scumbag but when we get to the end of this episode you'll you'll see another side of him you know you'll be like would you just would you either be an asshole or a really great guy i can't decide which but this is because you're he's a very complicated man now in april of 1844 charles had to take out another loan from his tom from his promise tom from his friend tom mitten on june 1st after many discussions with forster William Bradbury and Frederick Evans, an agreement was signed whereby they paid £2,000 into his account and he assigned them with a quarter share in everything he would write over the next eight years without being formally committed to writing anything. But it was expected that there would be another Christmas book for 1844. Charles at last felt free and Bradbury and Evans were going to do very well out of it Chapman and Hall were out of the picture from his new works for the next 15 years or so. 
Now, they had planned for quite some time that after Chuzzlewood ended, they would travel to Italy. And when the serial novel ended on June 30th, they packed, got everything in order, and by July 2nd, they were off to Italy. How nice would that be? Tell you what, you pay me a bunch of money. I'm not necessarily going to do shit, but if I do, you'll get some of it. I'm going to Italy with my family. <laughs> that shit doesn't fucking happen. No, it doesn't. But that would be great. It would be fucking amazing. 2,000 pounds wouldn't necessarily do it today, but I imagine that's worth a lot more now. Yeah. Now, first they had two days in Paris where Charles fell in love with France and the French with France and the French people, beginning an interest that would last him for the rest of his life. Then they finally met it, made it to Genoa, Italy, in mid-July, where they had a house waiting for them. Charles loved the look of the town from the boat, but up close, it looked, quote, of all the moldy, dreary, sleepy, dirty, lagging, halting, godforsaken towns in the wide world, it surely must be the very uttermost superlative. It seems as if one had reached the end of all things. <laughs> Fucking shit, man. <laughs> Isn't that really that bad? But you like Boston. I... For all of our friends, uh, listeners up in Boston, don't take it personally. We don't like the town we live in either. Yeah, no, it's shithole. Now, he also hated the house that they got, which he called a, quote, pink jail and was several miles outside of Genoa and infested with fleas. That's horrible. Having a house infested with fleas, it fucking sucks. Been there before. Now, with everything he hated, he also was not obliged to do any work. Quote, I never knew what it was to be lazy before. He swam in the sea, grew a mustache, rode in and out of Genoa, Walked by day until August when he walked by night because of the heat. Dined with his neighbor, Monsieur Alzert, the French consul there. He also, of course, went to the theater. I say he grew a mustache. His uh, brother, Fred, does end up showing up at the house to uh, visit. Mm -hmm. And he has grown a mustache, so Charles shaves his off. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the end of... Huh? Petty. Yeah, a little. Now, the end of September, they moved out of the pink jail into the 16th century Palazzo Pichieri, or Palace of the Fish Ponds in the heart of Genoa. I've seen pictures. This place is fucking gorgeous. Uh, The most magnificent house he will ever live in, with 50-foot-high ceilings, uh, nymphs and satyrs in the bedrooms, balconies and terraces, fountains and sculptures. It's gorgeous. Uh, it was here in the in this Italian palace that he started work on his new Christmas story, The Chimes, in which a poor old man, Trotty Vec, is sent visions by the spirits of the bells in the churches where he stands every day waiting for work. Spirits described as goblins, phantoms, or shadows. It was meant to shame the cruel and canting rich of the 1840s. This had a more direct political message than Carol, attacking... The complacency of political economists and magistrates who sentenced suicidal young women to prison or transportation, and landowners who enforced the game laws and toasted to the health of the laborer at their dinners while allowing the laborers to starve. Those fucktards. I mean, that happens today. Oh, thank you so much for all the hard work you do. Now here's your poverty wages. Go home. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now, this was true to life. The magistrate he satirized was an acquaintance, and a smart political economist had attacked him in the Westminster Review for failing to inform readers of A Christmas Carol, asking the ridiculous question, quote, Well, who went without turkey and punch in order for Bob Cratchit Mike to get them? Hmm. You remember the end of A Christmas Carol. Uh, he sticks his head out, tells the, the boy in the street to, to go... Go buy, you know, the last Christmas goose. And he takes over to Bob Cratchit's house. Well, this guy wants to know, well, if Bob Cratchit's getting that goose from you, who else isn't getting a, a goose? Motherfucker. You're missing the whole point of the goddamn story. Yeah, pretty much. Now, in, in Chimes, Trotty Vec, uh, his visions of his daughter and another young woman driven to prostitution and suicide by poverty and the young man his daughter loves, unjustly sentenced, turning to crime, he wakes up and realizes it was all a dream. The story made small political uproars, but it was never as popular as Christmas Carol. Writing the story made him miss London. He sent the first part to Forrester, telling him, quote, I would give a hundred pounds to see you read it. Fucking cheap. So in late November, he set off for London and met Forrester at the Piazza Coffee House, running into each other's arms. I'm not making that up. They literally ran into each other's arms. Uh, he stuck around a while, did some readings, had a tea party, and on December 8th, he left to be in Genoa. You know, I love their salami. <laughs> Dipshit. Uh, he left for Genoa uh, for Christmas with his family, even though he continued to write to Forrester with, lo- with their love growing ever so more intimate. I could not think of a better way to really put it other than, other than their love no not no these two are like two bottles of wine away from touching tips all right these these two it's more than just a fucking bromance it's a fucking bromance they they are like i i can see them like tying them together and making an h honestly <laughs> they are i, oh, I, oh, I, oh, I oh, really oh, oh, what <laughs> you, you stick them out you tie them together and then you're an h <laughs> You're, you and him or Dickens and Forster, and then they're connected right there. So you're they're an H. Have you thought about this? Uh, it's an old Louis C.K. joke. Okay, so Louis C.K. has thought about this. Uh, well, apparently Louis C.K. did it with a friend of his when he was a, a little kid. <laughs> and they tied him together to just see what happened. He goes, look, we're an H. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Now, just before he left for England in November, a friend that they had made while in Genoa, an English-speaking Swiss from Geneva named Emile de la Rue and his wife Augusta, asked Charles if he would be able to help Augusta's tic douloureux. Headaches, insomnia, occasional convulsions, and catalepsy, a list of ailments that sound very much like those of the 19th century women who turned up a little later in the clinics of Dr. Freud and were described as suffering from hysteria. It's possible that Charles had told them about his London doctor, Dr. Elliston, who used mesmerisms to deal with this kind of thing and had gone on to say that he had some skill in mesmerism himself. Uh, After his return to Genoa on the 23rd of December, he went to the De La Rue's to begin treatment. He believed in the treatment and thought he could be of help. He apparently had put both Catherine and Georgina into trances and thought that a real patient would give him a chance to do good and to justify his faith in mesmerism or hypnosis, whatever you want to call it. 
Now, even though this type of treatment has no real basis in any kind of real science, some people are able to produce behavioral changes in susceptible people, more than likely just a psychosomatic type of treatment than a scientific or medical one. His treatment consisted of putting her into a sleep-like trance and then questioning her about her experiences or fantasies. Few notes survive, but he told Emil that in one letter that she talked of being on a hillside among a crowd of men and women and suddenly seeing an absent brother, whom she named Charles, leaning against a window, seeming sad. She tried to find out what made him sad, and he, Brother Charles, started walking up and down the room, looking out the window at the sea, still sad, and she started crying. She said he was dressed in his uniform and that he was thinking of her. He believed himself forgotten and her letters to him had miscarried. Then he was gone. She also talked of lying on the hillside and being hit by stones rolled down by unseen people. And of a man haunting the place, rarely seen, who she feared and did not dare to look at. Charles decided this man was a bad spirit or a phantom. She began sleeping better in January and told him that she had been, quote, pursued by myriads of bloody phantoms in the most frightful aspect, and that, after becoming paler, they had all veiled their faces. She talked about sensations of fire in her head, which cooled with his treatment. She told him that she had suffered experiences too terrible to be described, like fever dreams that had really happened, a horrifying experience in the Trinata Diamanti, church in Rome that sounds like a psychotic episode that seemed like a real and powerful supernatural experience. Convinced so much that it was real that it stuck with her for years and caused the couple to warn Charles never to go to that church. Now when Charles had planned a trip when Charles had planned a trip with Catherine leaving on the 19th of January to Rome, they decided probably shouldn't go see that church he really believed in this shit uh, augusta and charles agreed to think of each other at 11 a.m every day to try to continue the treatment by way of long distance okay now, while in rome he was starting to have weird nightmares and experience disturbances in the wee hours of the night that he attributed to the evil spirit that haunted augusta but in all honesty, it was probably just the overactive imagination of a man that had made his living off his overactive imagination. Yep. Now, the De La Rue's joined them in Rome in March, and now Charles spent as much time with them all hours of the day and night as he could. Catherine was less happy about this. She was pregnant again and was hoping that she would get some attention from her husband instead of what she was calling this, quote, infatuation which he and the De La Rue's were caught up in together. Uh, they returned to Genoa in April, and before heading back to England, he tried to teach Emil how to mesmerize his wife unsuccessfully. Yeah, I guess not everyone has the gift. Well, him and Augusta keep up correspondence for a long time, and Catherine's kind of like, I think you might want to fuck this girl. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, during his year in Italy, he wrote to friends, mostly Forrester, and then used the letters in a book called Pictures from Italy. I won't get too much into it, but it's really just a travel book where he talks about the highs and lows of Italy life and the beauty of some of the cities and the horrors of others. He even throws in a public execution in Rome to point out his disdain for capital punishment. 
Everything was quickly put together once back in England. More bad reviews than good, but it made a small profit for him and his new publishers, Bradley and Evans, uh, Bradbury and Evans. His name, more than anything, is what sold the book, Bad Reviews or Not. Published in May of 1846, it continued to sell slowly and is still in print. Ooh. Yeah. In July 1845, Bradbury and Evans had thrown a new notion at him, a daily newspaper to rival the Times. Charles had suggested such a thing about three years earlier, so he was immediately on board. Forster wasn't, but Charles wrote to him and told him that his own confidence in his future as a writer was wavering, and he feared poverty and fading popularity, and that a newspaper might be the best thing for him. He negotiated with Bradbury and Evans and their friend Joseph Paxton, who would also be publisher, for £2,000 a year to be editor of the Daily News, which would be launched in January of 1846. It was a rocky start, but Charles eventually got to hire staff, Forrester for politics, his uncle John Barrow as a reporter on India and the Sikhs, his father-in-law George to write on music, and the most unexpected hiring, his father John to be in charge of the reporters. Hmm. He was trusted to fix the terms on which reporters were hired, deal with their copy, and to contribute to the organization of the newspaper. He was a success. At the age of 60, he was a popular and respected figure of the Fleet Street offices where he arrived to work every morning about 8, quote, full of fun, fond of glass of gorg, and known as the father of Boz. So I, I mean, that's probably most of the reason he had respect was because he was Charles's dad. Now, a few months before the paper got started, October 28th, 1945, Alfred Dorsey Tennyson Dickens was born, named after his two godfathers, the French Count and the English poet, the sixth child and fourth son to Charles and Catherine. Even though there was thought and emotion put into the naming of the baby, Charles said, quote, I care for nothing but girls, by the by, but never mind me. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's weird, and it's really shitty for the sons. Yeah. Now, you can only really sit back and imagine what life in that house could have been. Mamie remembered that their father inspected every room in the house every morning, checking for tidiness and cleanliness. Catherine's role in the household seems to have been almost entirely passive, her youth going by in perpetual pregnancies and her babies handed over at once to wet nurses, leaving her in a kind of limbo. Okay, you had the baby, and now we're going to let these people take care of it. You just kind of sit there and wait for the next baby. Yeah, that's kind of shitty, too. Yeah. Uh, she took herself for two walks a day during each pregnancy, but she walked too slowly for her husband to join her. Uh, how, how far be it for him to slow down his pace of walking for his pregnant wife. Yeah. Uh, there is no record of what she and Charles talked about, and although she shared his enjoyment of the theater, he habitually went with his men friends. Georgina worshipped him, accompanied him on walks, and made him laugh by mimicking their friends. And when she was not included in invitations, he sometimes wrote asking that she might be. Judging from his letters, there were not too many quiet evenings at the home, and the marital bedroom was the only place where husband and wife were alone together. Hmm. Yeah. She's really the victim in this entire story. She really is. Yeah. That's all she's there for is when he needs to get his dick wet. Honestly, yes. Now, another new Christmas story 
Like I said, he's going to write a bunch of them. Uh, the Cricket on the Hearth, A Fairy Tale of Home, was finished on December 1st. That same day, they announced the Daily News was going to be a liberal political paper and promised city news, foreign coverage, and scientific and business information of every topic connected with railways and criticism of books and art. Charles hired a secretary and sub-editor, William Wells, who would go on to become Charles's right-hand man. The Times was hostile to Charles in the new competition and attacked his new Christmas story as, quote, a twaddling manifestation of silliness without damaging its sales. The first edition of the Cricket sold out its 16,500 copies before the end of the year and went on to many reprints. The Christmas book from Charles would almost always sell fairly well, and even though the quality of the stories declined from the original, sales still increased due to the fact that there were 17 dramatizations of the cricket staged. Just right after he wrote it. Yeah, that's... Do you see a new Charles Dickens Christmas book out? All right, let's uh, let's let's get everybody together. We're gonna do we're gonna dramatize it right now. It's pretty much how it went. Now the Daily News made its debut on January twenty first, and on the thirtieth, Charles wrote to Forster, telling him he was quote revolving plans in my mind for quitting the paper and going abroad again to write a new book in shilling numbers. Literally just started the thing, and he wants to quit. Now, that same day, Forrester got his letter. Bradbury and Evans got their own. It wrote about his anxiety that the paper could be seen as corrupt through its one-sided presentation of railway news since so many of its backers had money in the railway. He also complained about their interference in the appointment of a sub-editor and other staff matters. Shortly after his birthday, Charles persuaded Forrester to take over as editor, and Charles handed in his resignation. More than likely, the pressure of being a daily newspaper editor were just too much for him to handle. Now well, he was just a chicken shit. That too. Like uh, I don't want this type of pressure because now because you're I mean you're running the thing. It's all on you. Yeah. Yeah. Now although no longer the editor, he did still contribute to it. His Italian travel pieces and four long, well-argued articles on capital punishment. Bradbury and Evans paid him 300 pounds at the end of December to cover January and February, and he complained in March that they hadn't paid him anything more and that his accounts were overdrafted. Then they paid him another 300 pounds and more in April, further straining his relationship with his new editors. Uh, He decided that his best plan from here, financially and professionally, would be to rent out their home and take another year abroad, this time in Switzerland. And they would be there by mid-June. Before leaving, Charles sent a letter to Miss Coutts, the rich woman I had told you about earlier, outlining an idea for a charitable enterprise in which they might collaborate, something that would be a central part of his life for more than a decade. He wrote 14 pages laying out a plan for setting up an asylum for women and girls working the London streets as prostitutes and a preliminary consideration of the practical details of re-educating them into a different way of life. He began by insisting that every young woman they might help would have been living a life, quote, dreadful in its nature and consequences and full of affliction, misery, and despair to herself. Never mind society while she is at the pass Society has used her ill and turned away from her. As she cannot be expected to take much heed of its rights or wrongs, it is destructive to herself. 
He went on to say that he hoped it could be explained to each woman who came for assistance, quote, that she is degraded and fallen, but not lost. Having this shelter and that the means of return to happiness are now about to be put in her own hands. He thought they would begin with about 30 and probably fail with half of them, but he hoped that the ones that stayed could be restored to society and even become, quote, virtuous wives. And he was very interested in the possibility of preparing them to emigrate to the colonies, Australia, South Africa, and Canada, and hoped the government might give them aid. He would continue to write Miss Couts with more ideas and suggestions from Switzerland. Now, on the 28th of June, Charles sat down and wrote the first pages of the book that would establish him in a secure financial position for the first time in his life, Dombey and Son. Have you ever heard of Dombey and Son? No. No? Well, that's a, it's a big one for him. The story opens up with the birth of Paul Dombey, the death of his mother, the hiring of a wet nurse, and the setting up of an unhappy relationship between little Florence Dombey and her father. He didn't feel great about the book. Where they were had no busy streets for him to gather inspiration from or for him to walk at night after working all day. He was on the verge of giving it up. He had a sort of depression, not being able to write and being away from Forrester for so long. I have my wife and I have my kids, but God, I miss that man. He needs his boyfriend. Uh, the fact that the time was pressing and Bradbury and Evans were advertising, quote, Mr. Dickens' new work. It was getting to the point where he was feeling physically ill from the stress. He decided to take a trip to Geneva with Catherine, who was again pregnant, and Georgina was summoned to join them. He gave a reading of the first chapter of the book to some friends, and he told Forrester it caused, quote, uproarious delight. I never saw or heard people laugh so. I was thinking the other day that in these days of lecturing and readings, a great deal of money might possibly be made by one's having readings of one's own book. It would be an odd thing. I think it would take immensely. What do you say? It was something he would go on to do, but much later. Again, all of our authors at some point go on reading tours of their own shit or lecturing tours. tours. and lectures, and yes. In November, they left Switzerland and moved to a house in Paris. Charles complained that the doors and windows failed to close properly against the freezing weather. The bedrooms were as small as opera boxes. The drapery on the walls was unscrutable, and the dining room absurdly painted to look like a grove of trees. He walked through the streets and invited Forster to join him. He knew he needed to get to work on Dombey, but soon after they got settled in, Charles got news from his father about his sister Fanny's health. She had consumption, tuberculosis of the lungs, and the doctor advised that neither she nor her husband should be told the truth, but suggested he did not expect her to recover. On December 19th, yet another Christmas book. The Battle of Life was published, the story of a girl who gives up her lover to her sister, uh, it sold out its first printing of 24,000 copies before Christmas Day and made him 1,300 pounds. Charles decided to take a quick trip back to London before Christmas to Forrester and to supervise the dramatization version of the battle at the Lyceum. Oh. Uh-huh. So if you listen to our Halloween series, you'll know the Lyceum 
quite well. Uh, he caught one of his infamous colds <clears throat> while there that he claimed in a letter to his wife was so bad that, quote, I can hardly hold up my hand and fight through from hour to hour as he waited impatiently for a letter from her. Fucking babe. I I take pride in the fact that I don't turn into a big sniveling baby when I get sick. He doesn't, and I'm quite proud of that. But sometimes I wish he would because I would love to take care of him. Well, because I've, I've gone so long having to, I can't take off days from work. I have to go work, so there's no point in sitting at home and sniveling about it. I just got to go to work. So I, I it's the, one of the few things I'm proud of myself about is I don't let a sickness kind of get to me. In, in, even even when I worked at a steel fa- foundry for like three months with pneumonia. I used to be able to handle any sort of sickness, and now I get... Now you are a huge baby. I am a huge baby. You are a huge baby. (laughs) Babe, I think I have a sinus infection. It's like, would you just breathe? Just breathe. You're okay. Well, no, because the... Any type of cold or anything, it just, it takes its toll on my body with my disorder. And it just... I know. I just like giving you shit. I Fuck you. (laughs) But yes. Now, the Battle of Life sold because there was always a market for a Dickens Christmas story, but the critics were merciless. And when he heard the reviews, he told Foster that he felt disposed to go to New Zealand. (laughs) He felt so bad. He just wanted, he wanted to go halfway across the fucking world. Now, Forster came to Paris to spend time with Charles, of course, and they walked the streets together, went to the theater, saw art, met with influential people of the city, you know, all the things you do on a date. <laughs> but during this time with Forster in Paris is where he fell in love with France and its people, which would lead to an eventual translation of all of Charles's novels into French. And within two years, he had mastered the language well enough for serious correspondence. Uh, he, he from that point on he I mean he learns French and he's actually he's not a great speaker of it but he he can write it fairly well after a while. I mean 2 years is pretty quick to get well versed in a language especially a language that's kind of flowery as French. Yeah, I think it's easier to write in a language than it is to speak it. Yeah, and understand it when spoken to you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in October of 1846, the opening number from Dumby was released, selling unexpectedly well. Charles claimed that this story of abuse and loss was autobiographical to his childhood, but even though his early life was far from perfect, it wasn't near the tragedies that were inside of Dombey and Son. And much like how he had done with Little Nell, he killed off young Paul Dombey, but not with the same heart-wrenching emotion that he had with Nell. This would be a story that was remarkably good in the first half, and as Ainsworth said about the second half, was, quote, infernally bad. Utter shite. Yes, pretty much. It's like you had me going until now. Now, The plan was to write another Christmas book for 1847, but every month of that year had some kind of major distraction. Finding a house in London to move into after returning from Paris because their home was still being rented out. Catherine needed a place to give birth and relative comfort. In February, little Charlie fell ill with scarlet fever. Charlie eventually recovered, but Charles and Catherine were not able to see him that whole time because of her pregnancy. On April 18th, Sidney Smith Halliman Dickens was born, the fifth son. 
in a horrible labor that was probably a breach delivery and required a second doctor. Again, no anesthesia, no epidural, nothing. Breach labor, natural. Yeah. Probably had that doctor pushing on her belly trying to turn the baby the whole time. Oh, maybe. God. Oh, yeah. my vagina hurts. She is the hero and the victim of the story. Oh, my, my fucking cross. Oh, my. <laughs> then three weeks later, Charles was attacked by a horse, tearing off his sleeve and almost his arm with it. It brought on a nervous seizure of the throat that required treatment, and he could not write for days. Then all the children got whooping cough all while he worried endlessly about his sister Fanny. He also kept himself busy with visiting friends, going to the funeral of his old publisher, William Hall, putting on theatricals, which he had been doing periodically with his friends and family for years, and near the end of 1847, going to the Mechanics Institute to speak. And I say he was been he was doing theatricals periodically this whole time. There's like a, two chapters just dedicated to the theatricals he put on with his friends and family. I don't get into it because they... they aren't really important but he does put on a lot of fucking plays little plays with his friends because he has fantasies of being an actor now after christmas he took Catherine to glasgow where another institute wanted him to speak unfortunately Catherine did not hear him speak because she had gotten ill on the train suffering from an early miscarriage Uh, he made light of it to georgina saying that it was nothing to speak of but he told his brother alfred that she had become violently ill and he had to call two doctors and they demanded she do nothing but return home. And there was one more voluntary distraction. Uh, That letter he wrote to Mrs. Coutts about helping prostitutes was pushed forward with unflagging commitment and determination. Mrs. Coutts, good and generous and ready to follow where Charles led, was prepared to fund the project, which would cost over 700 pounds a year more like 50,000 to 60,000 pounds today, a year. That's still a lot of fucking money. Yeah. And she gave him almost free reign to setting it up. He needed to find a house large enough to take up a dozen or so young women, sharing bedrooms, plus a matron and her assistant. He wanted 30, but that wasn't going to happen. And he decided that central London was unsuitable, but that it should be not too far out of that either. In May of 18. 18- 47, he came upon a small, solid brick house near, oh, fucking English, Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> and that's the perfect name, too, <laughs> Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> the house was already named Urania, Co- Urania Cottage, but he called it simply the home. The idea that it should feel like a home rather than an institution. You're in a cottage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Urania Cottage, not Urania Cottage. (laughs) I know, but it just, it's fucking great. Uh, His aim was to rescue two categories of young women, those who were already known to be prostitutes and those likely to drift into it because they lacked family support, had fallen into bad company, could not get work, become thieves and pickpockets, or were simply starving and in some cases suicidal. They were to be offered places in the home with good food, an orderly life, training and reading, writing, sewing, domestic work, cooking, and laundering, and prepared to emigrate to new lives in the colonies. 
His plan was to interview each young woman recommended to him, mostly by prison governors, uh, magistrates, police, to question her about her life and form an opinion of her suitability. Once accepted, she would be told that no one would ever mention her past to her. It was expected that each of them would live at the home for about a year before being given a supervised place on an emigrant ship, by which time she would be well-nourished, healthy, better educated, and better able to manage her life. The conditions in which the women lived were not harsh, but simple. They slept three or four to a bedroom, each with her own bed. One young woman cried at the sight of a good bed all to herself when she first saw it. It's the first she had had pretty much her whole life. Then they'd get up at six in the morning. They'd make each other's beds to discourage everyone from hiding alcohol. They had short prayers twice daily before breakfast and in the evening. Uh, they were all well-fed with breakfast, dinner at 1, and tea at 6 as their last meal of the day. There was schooling for two hours every morning, mostly reading, writing, simple arithmetic, and free time before and after dinner and tea. There was reading aloud while they did their needlework, making and mending their own clothes. They had their own plots in the garden. They did all the household tasks, which were rotated weekly, laundry, house cleaning, cooking, bread making, and so on. They made soup for the poor to give them the satisfaction of helping others. On Saturdays, there was a grand house tidying and cleaning, and everyone had a bath. On Sundays, they went to church with the matrons, who would also take them out individually or in small groups on other days. No one was allowed out on her own or to have unsupervised visits or private correspondence for fear that old associates might try to draw them back to the life that they had had before. A doctor came if anyone was ill, and they were taken to the hospital for treatment if necessary. No one was accepted who was pregnant or had a child. They were given marks for good behavior, punctuality, cleanliness, and could lose marks for bad behavior. And these marks were worth money, so they were able to accumulate some uh, wealth while they were there that they could use after they left. The first three girls left for Australia in January 1849, and 27 more crossed the seas over the next five years. Aww. Yeah, you got, this is this is one of the one of the things you could point out that he he did that was genuinely good. He helped people, and in the book, apparently there's another book I haven't gotten it, but in the book they mention this other book where they actually go and track down the descendants of a lot of the women that stayed. And a lot of these women went on to marry even semi-successful people and have kids who went on to be successful. And it, obviously, not a, we're going to get to a few of them that it didn't work for. But for a lot of these women, it completely changed their entire lives. And I don't know. It's just it's it's uh, again. He's a complicated fucking guy because he could be a douchebag at home, but then he goes out and he does this shit. Now, Charles expected failures, and there were girls who were bored by the ordered life and could not bear living so quietly. One told him, frankly, as he was leaving after a committee meeting, that she wished she were going out too, preferably to the races. Another took up secretly with a local policeman. Uh, two broke into the cellar with knives and got drunk on the beer stored there. And one he described after expelling her as, quote, 
capable of corrupting a nunnery in a fortnight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Some were so used to stealing that they couldn't give it up. There was drama, girls who stirred up trouble, girls who ran away, and girls who had to be expelled. But the majority did well. He grew fond of the cheeky ones, as they say, and understood that the quiet routine of the home was difficult for many of them, but he never hesitated to throw out those who made trouble. Uh, when they were expelled, they were not allowed to keep their good clothes. And it was, you're, you're out, you're out. You don't get a second chance. It's you, you do this right or you're gone. Ooh. And he was tough about it. And he, and he was the one. They didn't know who he was. These were street women. They didn't know Charles Dickens. So when they came in and they met him personally, they had no idea that they were talking to a world-famous author. They just saw him as, and as they put it, she puts it in the book, Mr. Dickens. So that's just who he was to them. Nobody special. Just the guy who was giving them food and, you know, giving them a place to live and, and teaching them how to sew their own clothes. And, and here's, here's the crazy thing. No one in the public life uh, was aware that he was doing this. Oh. Yeah. Uh, he wrote an article about the home for uh, Household Words that was published anonymously, and we'll get to Household Words uh, the next episode. Uh, he gave an extraordinary amount of time and energy to making a success of it, seeing it as a model for others to follow, and this would carry on for a decade. So... How it's, much it, do we have left for this episode? Just, just one last paragraph. Okay. So it's 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 not something that is like, okay, I'm going to do this for a little bit, then I'll be done with it. He sticks with it. Ten fucking years he pushes this thing. Well, nine years almost he pushes with this thing. And saves He saves the lives of God knows how many women. Now, the first three months of 1848 led to around 34,000 sales of Dombey, finally give him, giving him the financial security he was hoping for. He celebrated his good fortune with the sales. Him and 12 male friends went to dinner the day before the last number of Dombey was released. Catherine had recovered fully from the miscarriage and was, once again, any guesses? Pregnant. Hey, very good. She pays attention. His and Forrester's relationship would have a new development, which would lead to yet another Christmas book. There would be, <laughs> there would be, what did you think I was going to say? Romance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there would be a tragic but not surprising death. And, of course, more children. On our third and final question mark. Actually, I have two question marks. <laughs> <laughs> Episode of Charles Dickens. Yay. So we'll see. I, I, I still got a lot of shit to cover. I'm, I'm, I skipped over a lot of shit that was in Switzerland and everything in this one because it kind of goes to Switzerland. Okay, now he's in Paris because nothing really happens. But uh, a lot of shit to get through. I'm working on it. So we'll, we'll see where we get. Yeah. All right. Well, Stephanie, socials. Okay, on Twitter and Instagram, we are at OpenAFING Book, and I am at ECJBAT. I'm YoungETAM6, Twitter, YoungETAM on Instagram. You can email us at openafingbook at gmail.com. There's any books you want us to cover, any authors you want us to cover, or just shoot the shit. I'm fine with it. Stephanie, our Goodreads. Goodreads.com slash OpenAFING Book. You can go to Patreon, patreon.com, OpenAFING Book. And we have pl plenty of fucking Spotify stickers left. All your donations go to make this uh, show better than what it already is. Uh, 
Uh, come back for our weekday show. Um, been getting a lot of responses from the authors that we've been talking about and the books that we've been talking about. It's yes. it's really exciting. It is. It is. Uh, it, it's. I love hearing from authors. I know it's been it's been great. So I'm hoping that we keep hearing from them. And eventually, one of them is up to like an interview or something because I'd really like to get some interviews on the weekday shows. I love seeing Kevin starting to get giddy hearing from the authors like how when I used to before I started getting too busy with school I had a a blog a blog yeah yeah, where I reviewed books for authors Mm -hmm. and I I would get uh books from authors and I would review them and I would get tweets and instant messages and Facebook posts and Facebook messages from all these authors and I would get so excited and you giddy, would. and now I'm seeing it from Kevin, and I am just in I just, I think love with it. I think it's neat. You know, we, we sit here on our little show, we talk about it, and then I I tweet to them because they're not going to know, you know, if I don't if I don't tell them, they're right. not going to know. I tweet them, and and I guess we've done like 23 of those episodes. So we do at least four. I know we've done a, more than four an episode on a lot of them. We do at least four books per episode. So that's... Mail's here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what? 90? 82? 92? 92 fucking authors? So far, yes. And I would say probably 90% of them at least like retweet or message us back and say at least thank you yes which and if that's all we get from them i'm happy because i mean at least they're acknowledging we have had some authors not say anything back to us and you know i get it a lot of people don't check their twitter all the time and a lot of people don't you know whatever but it's it's exciting when we get when you know at at least an acknowledgement yes for our acknowledgement of their work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm acknowledging you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty much all it is. Uh, anyway, come back for our weekday show. And ev- uh, eventually, maybe we'll do an interview and have it uh, have it up there. That'd be great. Uh, rate and review us wherever you listen. All the podcast apps. There's a billion of them out there. Just download all of them. Rate and review us and, and subscribe and follow. And, yeah, yeah. Just do your thing. Uh, go to your local library, volunteer if they have that type of thing. Buy a book from a local independent author at a local independent bookstore if you can. It's the best thing you can do. For As those he's dancing right and now. bouncing. I could sing Deck the Halls in the uh, style of Black Sabbath. If you'd rather I did that than dance. No. Okay. I was doing that on my walk this morning. It's fun. Okay. Okay. That's it. That's okay. all I got. That's that's literally the end. It literally says end on my paper. So that's end. it. That's it. All right. All right. All right. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now and time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys. Ho, ho, ho.